Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, thank you, Bob, and good morning to you. Um, as Bob said, my name is Andrew Brown. I am the youth director here at New Life, and I wanted to start this morning by showing you a comic strip that I came across a few years ago that has always stuck with me. The comic is by a man named Joel Kaufman. He's actually an Indiana native, and it's about this frog named Pontius Puddle. Pontius Puddle is on the right there, and his, his friend and him are playing golf. His friend the turtle, I don't know if he has a name, but they're talking, and as sometimes happens on the golf course, the, the topic of church comes up. And the turtle says, does your congregation have any difficulty dealing with the poor? To which Pontius responds by saying, not really. We've been able to keep them out of our church without too much trouble. Now there is something, you know, slightly comical about Pontius's response there, but I also think it hits a little bit closer to home than maybe we're comfortable. Isn't it true that this is how the church often responds to the problem of the poor? To just keep them away, to ignore them, to pretend they don't exist, um, to say, let someone else deal with them. The church as a whole and individual members in it, like you and me, have not always done a great job of caring for those who are in need. But as we'll see today, this indifferent response is really out of step with the truth of the gospel, and it calls into question the faith that we profess. So this morning, as we continue in our study of the undivided life on the book of James, we're going to be looking at three things that we must be in order to follow in Jesus' footsteps and care for the poor and the needy among us. So this morning, if you have your Bible, please grab it and turn to the book of James. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a paperback one in the pews in front of you. If you could just take that out, um, turn it over to page 586 is where we'll be at. So book of James, chapter 1, verse 26. And can we please stand for the reading of God's word? Chapter 1, verse 26 through 2.13. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich 
the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged by the, under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would make us sensitive to the leading of your spirit. That you would work in our hearts in ways that only you can. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the last time we looked at the book of James, we saw that those who have been born again by the word of truth must now be doers of the word and not hearers only. Well, in verse 26 and 27 here, we see what James had in mind by being a doer of the word. Look at what it says here. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So here we have what might be considered three tests. Three tests to help you see if you are a doer of the word or if you are just a hearer. In verse 26, you can see the, the test of words, you know, those who bridle, bridle their tongue. In verse 27, we see the test of wealth, caring for orphans and widows. And then finally, we also see the test of worldliness, to keep oneself unstained from the world. And these two verses here, they're kind of like a transition statement for the rest of the book. Because over the next several chapters, James is going to elaborate on each one of these tests. And while this might be a little bit of an oversimplification, I do think it can help us to understand the book of James. You can think about it this way. Chapter 2 is about the test of wealth. Chapter 3 is about the test of words. And chapter 4 is about the test of worldliness. But today, since we are on chapter 2, we're going to be focusing on just the test of wealth. And in verse 27 there, we see the first thing we need to be to pass this test. To care for the poor and the needy, we must first be aware. We must first be aware. Awareness is about being informed. It's about having a knowledge of something. So what is it in particular that we need to be aware of to care for the poor and the needy? Well, I think this passage actually shows us two things we must be aware of. First, we must be aware of the affliction of the needy. When James says we must visit orphans and widows, he's using those terms in a, in a representative way. In the ancient world, orphans and widows were often some of the most vulnerable members of society. And so God singled them out as those who should be given special attention. 
But eventually that phrase, orphan and widow, became kind of like a, a shorthand for anyone who was in need. And so James here is not necessarily saying that you should go out and find an orphan or a widow and hang out with them. That's not necessarily what he's saying. And that's because in our society, many orphans and many widows are extremely wealthy and extremely powerful. So the point then that James is making here is that we should visit those who are in need, those who could actually use our help. And yes, sometimes that will be orphans and widows, but there's many other people that it could be. Consider for a second who in our society is the most needy. Just think about that to yourself, or maybe even better, consider in your own life. Who are the people in your life who are most in need? But notice when we should be visiting those people. So get that person kind of in your mind and just think about them and then consider when you should be visiting them that James says. He says it's in their affliction. It's when they're suffering. It's when they're in pain and distress. This is when we are needed. This is when we can truly help. And this is what we must be aware of. If we're ever going to truly help those who are in need, we must at least be aware of their afflictions. But we must also be aware of the requirements of our religion. The requirements of our religion. You know, religion is not a bad word. I know many people today kind of think it is, and they want to describe Christianity, particularly Christians do this. They say, uh, it's not a religion. It's a, it's a relationship. And I generally know what people mean by that, but, but the truth is, Christianity is a religion. And religion is a biblical word, and you should be happy to use the word religion. There's nothing wrong with it. Perhaps a better way to show the distinctiveness of Christianity is not by distancing ourselves from the word religion, but rather by actually living out what our religion requires. And that's what James is saying there in verse 27. He's saying that caring for the poor and the needy is an essential aspect of the Christian religion. It's not an optional add-on. It's not something only, you know, super Christians do. It's fundamental to following Jesus. Now, obviously, it's not the only part of following Jesus or even the most important part. James is not summarizing here the basics of the Christian faith, but he is making the point that if you neglect the lowly, if you neglect them and overlook them, then all your religious practices are worthless. They aren't pure, they aren't undefiled, and they aren't acceptable in God's sight. Now we need to pause and really consider that because that is a really staggering claim that James is making here. What he is saying is that if you refuse to care for the lowly, then all your religious practices, whether that's coming to church, whether that's fasting, whether that's reading the Bible, whatever it may be, these practices are not acceptable to God, but are in fact repulsive to him. Now that seems very harsh, but James isn't actually the first one to say that. We find that same kind of language throughout the Bible. For instance, consider Isaiah chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. This is, this is God speaking, and he says this to the Israelites. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. 
Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. So God is not interested in our religious performance if you use those religious performances as a way to avoid the requirements of caring for the poor and needy. So if you and me are going to pass the test of wealth and show that our religion is pure and undefiled before God, then we must be aware of both who the needy are and what our responsibility is to them. But we must be more than just aware. We must also be impartial. We must be impartial. Look at what James says in verse 1 of chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You know, partiality there is not a word we use too often anymore, but it basically means unfairly treating one person or one group of people as better than another. So, for example, you're showing partiality if you're unfairly treating a smart person differently than you'd treat someone with less intelligence. Or you're committing partiality if you treat a a beautiful person differently, unfairly, than you would treat someone who is less attractive. Or you treat a white person differently than you would someone of another race. Or finally, as we see here in James, a wealthy person differently than you'd treat someone who is poor. That's partiality. And what James is saying in this verse is that this sort of action has no place in the life of a follower of Jesus. But what makes this difficult for us is that partiality is one of those sins that's a lot easier to see in other people. You know, it's a lot easier to see when somebody else is showing partiality than when you're doing it yourself. And so in verses 2 through 4 there, James gives us this concrete example of the way partiality might play out in our lives. And what's unique there is the place that James chooses to focus. He chooses to focus on the corporate gathering of the people of God. You know, what we're doing right now. That's where James chooses to focus and show us how partiality happens. So I think it'd be helpful for us to maybe apply the same kind of scenario that James is talking about into our own life here at New Life. So just imagine this for a second. Imagine next week you've come to church, you got here a little bit early because you're a good Christian, (laughs) I don't know there. You're here early and you're waiting for the service to begin and you kind of just look back and you see someone new coming in through the door, someone you've never seen before. And the man that comes in, he's wearing kind of baggy clothes. He looks a little dirty. Um, You could imagine that he probably smells a little bit, doesn't look like he's had a shower in a while. And he's got this kind of just look that's sad or maybe even a little bit angry. And maybe you already know him from school or maybe from work. And you know he's kind of weird. He's kind of socially awkward. And then right as this man sits down, you happen to see another person come in one of the doors. And this man's almost the complete opposite. He's good-looking. He's wearing nice and expensive clothes. He's confident. He's smiling. And maybe you know him, too. Maybe he's important in the community or popular at your school. And he takes a seat a few rows over from the other man. Now, here's where the question is. 
after the service, which one of those two people are you more likely to go up and talk to? Which one of those two are you more likely to avoid or to ignore? I think this example, if we are being honest and if we really put ourselves in that position, I think it maybe hits a little bit closer to home, makes partiality come alive a little bit more. And I think most of us might not do so well in that kind of scenario. But I think this example really shows us why partiality is so damaging, in particular, to the poor and the needy. I think we see two major problems with partiality in this passage. First, it's because partiality is selfish. Partiality is selfish. Right after James gives this example, he then says in verse 4, if you give unfair treatment to the wealthy, have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I think the evil thoughts and judgments that James is talking about here are using people for your own benefit. So if you are rich, if you're popular, if you're good-looking, if you're smart, well, then I will be tempted to think, what can you do for me? If I was friends with that person, what benefit would they bring me? Or imagine if they were members of this church, think of all the good that they could do at our church, how much that would help us. You see what's happening there? It's all about what this person can do for me, and it's essentially selfish. But you know, it's, it's also the same on the other side, right? For the poor person, the one who is difficult to be around, it's still the same thing. It's always, what will they take from me? If I befriended them, think of all the things that they would ask of me. Think of all the time, maybe the money and the energy they would take from me or from my church. Again, it's still all about me. So partiality often turns people into a means to an end. People are no longer treated as image bearers of God, but as objects to be used for our own benefit. Now, just to be clear here, in the example James gives, being impartial does not mean ignoring the rich man and then just going up to the poor person. That's still favoring one over another based on external things. But I think what we need to realize is that partiality in particular affects the poor and the needy. They are the ones who are most hurt when we selfishly act in partiality to the rich. Since they can't offer us what we desire, they are often the ones who get neglected and go uncared for. So our selfish partiality is a problem because it disproportionately affects the poor. But partiality also hurts the poor because it's worldly. Partiality is worldly. This is what James is talking about in verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Now, this doesn't mean that poor people automatically have faith. There are millions of people in the world today who do not believe in Jesus. And I think you can even see in verse 5 there that this is about poor people who love God, those who love Jesus. So this isn't saying that being poor alone gets you chosen by God. But it is saying 
that God often chooses those whom the world rejects. God often chooses those whom the world rejects. Just think about how the world responds to poor people. I mean, what do we often hear about the poor? If they would just, you know, stop being so lazy. If they just get a job. If all they do is ask for money. People despise the poor. And James is telling us it's these people, the people whom the world rejects. Poor people, yes, but also this could extend to other areas as well. Unpopular people, annoying people, people who have all sorts of problems, people who can't get it together. These are the kinds of people that God chooses often to be the heirs of his kingdom. And these are the people that God wants to be around. You know, it's so, so different than the way we often respond. God doesn't choose teams the way we would choose teams. When I was in college, I played intramural basketball, and I had a pretty good team my, my junior year. I thought we were stacked, we were going to do really well. But unfortunately that year, two members of the Ball State basketball team um, were kicked off the team, and they also decided to play intramurals. Uh, and the team that they chose was really unique. They chose members on their dorm floor who basically never played basketball before. They were not good at basketball in any way. They did not deserve to be on the court. But when we played them, we got destroyed by them because these two players were so good. And in some sense, they chose their team to show off their own goodness, their own greatness. And I think that's the way God chooses teams as well. He chooses those who will highlight his own greatness, those who need him, those who are weak, those who are downcast. And that means that he often chooses those whom the world rejects, people like you and me. But you know, the world, the world does just the opposite of this. The world often chooses those who reject God. Look at verses 6 and 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Again, this isn't saying that rich people, all rich people are oppressive or blaspheme God's name. But it is saying that those who do that or those sorts of things are typically the wealthy. It's typically the powerful who are oppressive. It's typically those who are self-secure who reject God's provision. And so James is saying here that it makes no sense whatsoever for the church to be partial to the rich. When we think about it, you, you, you can see that wealth is not a category the Bible defines as deserving honor or favor. Being impartial doesn't mean ignoring every single distinction between people. Obviously, I should treat my children different than other children in this church. And I should favor my wife over other women in this church. That's obvious. But there are also biblical categories of honor and even favor, which would lead to situations that look like partiality, but are in fact not. So, for instance, to use another example from the corporate gathering of the people of God, if an elderly woman next week came into our service and, you know, uh, our, our entire sanctuary was full, so may that happen. May the Lord bring that about. Uh, our, there's no place for her to sit. 
I do not think the deacons would be showing partiality to go up to a high schooler and say, hey, can you move so that this lady can sit here? I do not believe that would be partiality. The Bible commands us to honor age over youth. And this would be, seem to be an appropriate example of it. But you know what category the Bible does not honor? Wealth. Riches alone do not deserve our honor or our praise or our favor. Yes, the world honors those things. The world often gives the wealthy a free pass and kind of lifts them up with this illegitimate importance. But the church should not be like that. We should treat both the rich and the poor with impartiality. And just to consider the other side of this, if you're thinking about this, poverty is also not a category the Bible honors. But, as we have already seen in verse 27, poverty is a category that the Bible singles out for focus and attention. And worldly partiality often takes that away, awareness away from the poor. So if we are going to care for the poor and needy, we must be aware, we must be impartial, and finally, we must be merciful. Be merciful. James kind of switches gears here a little bit in verses 8 and 9. He's still talking about the problems of partiality, but now he's bringing in God's law into the equation. He shows us why mercy should be a defining characteristic for Christians. Look at verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So you can't love your neighbor as yourself when you show partiality. And of course, I think that makes pretty good sense, right? You don't want other people to treat you unfairly based upon the way you dress, the way you talk, how much money you have, where you were born, or your family history. And so if you don't want that to happen to you, well then of course if you do it to others, then you aren't loving them as yourself, and therefore you are committing sin. But I think when we, when we think about partiality, I think we get this kind of, this idea that it's, 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 it's a big deal, yeah, it's, it's something, but isn't there more important things to focus on? Things like sexual immorality or pride or idolatry. I mean, those, those are really big sins. We should really focus on those. But I think that misses the whole point of what James is saying here. Partiality is a huge deal. When we unfairly treat one person as better than the other, we're breaking the second greatest commandment. There's no small command we're breaking here. And when we break this command, the whole law falls apart. And that's what James is saying in verses 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So if you, even if you keep all of the commandments and only broke this tiny little one about being impartial, you're still accountable for breaking all of the law. You see, breaking God's law is like tempered glass. Breaking tempered glass. I don't know if you've ever seen this, and if you haven't, I've got a video for us. So we're just going to watch a quick video of what it's like to break tempered glass. Here it is. Pretty incredible. 
The one tiny hit to the glass there destroys the whole thing. That's really what God's law is like. Once you break any part of the law, you are forever a lawbreaker. You can't undo it. You can't pick up all the pieces of glass and try and glue them back together and say, look, God, I've, I've kept your law. That's not how it works. Once a lawbreaker, always a lawbreaker. And unfortunately, that describes each and every one of us here this morning. We have all broken God's law beyond repair, and we are justly deserving of God's judgment. But there is good news. The good news of the Christian religion is that Jesus did not ignore the spiritually poor and the needy. He did not ignore lawbreakers like us. He did not turn a blind eye on your helpless condition. Instead, he left his kingdom above and came not only to die in your place for your breaking of the law, but also to live a life of perfect obedience in your place. You see, Jesus never once broke even the smallest of God's commands. If you want to think about it this way, his glass was still completely intact. And yet, in his mercy now, he offers his death and his life of perfect obedience to you to be received as a gift by faith. But here's the thing. If you have received that gift, if you are a Christian here this morning, if you know what it's like to be given mercy that you did not deserve, then you of all people in this world should be quick to show mercy to others. And that's what James is saying in verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In Christ, you are no longer under the law of sin and death. You have been freed from the judgment of the law through the mercy of God. God's mercy has triumphed over his judgment, and now you must also show that same kind of mercy to others. When you see the poor, the unpopular, the outcast of society, when you see them, when you come across them in your daily life, may they be a picture of the gospel to you. May they point you back to the mercy that God has shown you. When you see their physical condition, may it remind you of your spiritual condition apart from Jesus. And then, may you move towards them in mercy as God has moved toward you as well. Let me conclude today by showing you another comic by Pontius Puddle. He's again sitting with his friend, and his friend, he, Pontius says, sometimes I'd like to ask God why he allows poverty, famine, injustice, when he could do something about it. His friend responds, well, what's stopping you? To which Pontius replies, I'm afraid God might ask me the same question. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you this morning to open our eyes to the needs of those around us. 
Make us to be agents of your mercy in this world in both word and in deed. Let us never forget the mercy that you have shown us in Christ and let us be quick to extend the same kind of mercy to others. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.